Thank you, Brother Greg, for doing a wonderful job leading us in their songs. I really appreciate that. And thank you to all of you who are here this morning for the purpose of worshiping and praising the name of God. It's been a wonderful day of worship. I'm so happy to see all of you this morning. I'm especially happy that we have this time right now to dig into the Holy Scriptures. In fact, let's go ahead and jump right into our lesson this morning. I want to begin the lesson by putting a scripture on the slide behind me. I want to put on the slide Judges 21 and verse number 25. For those of you who've been able to be in Bible classes for the last several weeks, you know that from this verse we've made the point that this verse, Judges 21 and verse 25, unfortunately perfectly sums up the period of the Judges. Remember this verse describes the period of Judges as a time of chaos, as a time of wickedness and lawlessness and rebellion against God, as a time when everybody did what was right in his own eyes and they completely rejected the authority of God. The period of judges may be the darkest period in the history of the nation of Israel, but even though it was dark, and awful and sinful and even painful for us to read about at times. Believe it or not, but a beautiful story also comes together during this time. A beautiful story also unfolds during the time of the judges. In fact, this story is one of the most beautiful stories you'll read about in your Bible. It is a story that offered hope. Not just for the Hebrews or for the Jewish people, but, but for all people. For the Gentile people, for the people from the other nations. In fact, the main character in the story is somebody from another nation. It's actually a woman who came from another nation. She was a woman who was a Moabite. She was part of a nation of people who were the enemies of God's people at this time. And I'm pretty sure that most of you know exactly who this woman is I'm talking about. I'm pretty sure that, that most of you know the identity of this woman. You know that this woman has a book in the Bible that bears her name. You know we're talking about Ruth. We're talking about Ruth. We're talking about the book of Ruth. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time, when was the last time you took a few minutes just to read the book of Ruth? When was the last time you took a few minutes just to study through the book of Ruth? When was the last time you appreciated all the wonderful lessons about faith that are found in the book of Ruth? How many of you have Ruth as your favorite Bible character? You know, I've read a lot of bios on the website for the past four years, and with the exception of two people, and those people know who they are. I didn't see anybody else pick Ruth on their bio as their favorite Bible character. You see, Ruth, it's not someone that we typically give a lot of attention to in our time today. But since we have reached a point this quarter when we're going to start spending a couple of classes studying the book that does bear her name this morning, I thought it would be good that we just kind of jump-started that by just rehearsing the story. 
Are you okay with that? Can we just rehearse the story this morning? Can I ask you to blow the dust off of the book of Ruth this morning and appreciate with me just a few reasons why this is such a beautiful story that takes place in a very dark time. And let's just begin with the first chapter. Let's look at chapter one. Will you look at Ruth chapter one with me this morning, going back to the verses that Brother Drew did such a wonderful job reading for us this morning. I want you to notice how the writer of the book of Ruth begins this story by telling us some things about the time. He wants us to understand some things about the time. He wants us to understand that this very beautiful story does take place in a dark time. He says it took place in the time of the judges. It took place during a time when the people of Israel are going through this cycle of wickedness. And God is using people like Samson and Gideon and Deborah and Jephthah to deliver them from their enemies before telling us anything else in this book. The writer, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to know that this story takes place during the time of the judges. But it doesn't just take place in the time of the judges. He also tells us very early that it takes place in a time of famine. Do you see that? It takes place in a time of famine, a famine in the land of Israel. In fact, this famine is so bad. It is so severe. It is causing so much suffering on the people of God that a man named Elimelech took his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they leave. They leave Bethlehem. They lead. They leave the land of Israel and they go into Moab. They go and dwell in the land of Moab. And after spending some time in Moab, the next thing the writer tells us is that Elimelech, Elimelech dies. He dies while they are living in the land of the Moabites and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, well, they get some wives from among the Moabite women. One of them marries a woman named Orpah, and the other one marries Ruth. And so these two sons pick two Moabite women to be their wives, and after spending a few years there, eventually the two sons, they die like their father. Malon and Kilion, they die, and so... By the time you get to the end of verse five, you know what you got? You got three widows. You got three widows after five verses. Naomi's a widow. Orpah's a widow. Ruth is a widow. This book begins with suffering. There's a lot of suffering going on right away in the book of Ruth. And once Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem, once this famine is finally over, she tells her to Moabite daughter-in-laws, hey, we need to go our separate ways. She said, we need to go our separate ways. She told them, it's pointless for you, Moabite women, to come back with me to Bethlehem. She said, if you come back with me to Bethlehem, I don't have anybody for you to marry. I don't have any more sons for you to marry. And if you do come with me to Bethlehem, you're not going to know anybody. You're not going to have any friends there. People are going to look down on you. They're going to view you as a foreigner, as an outcast. They're probably going to turn their noses up at you. She also told them that she felt God was against her. She felt God had turned his back against her, that God had cursed her, that she had nothing good to offer them. Ruth 
Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, is a very bitter woman by this time. She thinks the Lord does not love her, that he has cursed her with all this suffering. And so I want you to notice what the scripture goes on to say as we pick up in verse 14. In verse 14, once Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws, we need to split up, go our separate ways. You stay in Moab, I'm going back home. It says in verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to your people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw, when Naomi saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So notice how after Orpah decides to follow that advice, to stay in Moab and continue living her life, the scripture says that Ruth said, the other daughter-in-law said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. She told Naomi, I am not going to leave you. I am not going anywhere. I'm going to stay by your side. I am going to cling to you. Do you see that word in verse 14? You see that word cling or clung? That is a very strong Hebrew word. That word is actually translated from the same root word that's found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 24 that says that when a man gets married to a woman, when he takes on a wife, he is to leave father and mother and cleave or cling to his wife. Ruth is going to cling or cleave to Naomi. She is going to be glued to her. She's never going to leave her side no matter what rough times come their way. Ruth is insistent. I'm going back to Bethlehem leaving her home, going to the land of the Israelites. And in chapter 2, we see what happens when they get there. In chapter 2, we see that when they arrive in Bethlehem, it's at the beginning of the barley harvest. When does the barley harvest take place? Well, the barley harvest takes place in the spring. They get back in the spring, and remember, these two women don't have husbands. They don't have men to take care of them. Both of their husbands are dead, are dead, and this is not during a time when widows are able to collect pensions and Social Security benefits and even apply for some government assistance. If they don't go to work, they are going to starve. They're not going to have anything to eat. And Ruth, she certainly understood that. She understood how desperate their situation was, and that's why when she gets into Bethlehem, she gets a job. She goes to work. She goes out gleaning every day behind the harvesters. You see, God in his great wisdom made a provision in the law of Moses designed to help poor people, both in Leviticus 19 and in Deuteronomy chapter 24. The law provided for helping the poor by legislating that they be allowed to gather the remains in the field after the harvesters and the reapers were finished with their work. 
this provision in God's law was extremely beneficial to people like Ruth and Naomi because they're poor. They're very poor and they don't have any husbands. And so Ruth, she gleans. She gets up and goes to work every day gathering grain so that her and her mother-in-law can have something to eat. In fact, when we get to verse number three, the Bible says that she gleaned in the field of a man named Boaz. You see Boaz's name in verse three? That's an important person. That's another important character in this story. Boaz was actually a close relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. He's also a very wealthy man. He's an owner of land. He's a good man. He's a just man. He's a man who is fair and righteous. This is a very good man. In fact, one day while Ruth is gleaning or gathering in his field, he sees her and he takes some special notice of her. He takes special notice of this woman named Ruth. She catches his eye. In fact, she doesn't just catch his eye, but he starts investigating her. He starts inquiring about her. He asks people questions about her. He wants to know who is this woman. And when he learns of her situation, when he learns why she's in Israel, she's in Israel because she's a good woman. She's here as a foreigner taking care of her mother-in-law. When he learns that, he's impressed. He's very impressed with Ruth. He is so impressed with her. He's so impressed with her character that the scripture says he makes provisions for her. He makes it easy for her to glean and gather whatever she needs. He provides her with water. He commands his servants, don't you lay a hand on her. Don't you touch her. He even has a conversation with her and he begs her, don't go anywhere else. Glean right here. You stay right here in my field. He's impressed with her and he makes a lot of provisions for her. And when she realizes all these provisions that he's made for her at first, she's a little suspicious. She's a little surprised by all he's doing. She asks him, why are you being so nice to me? Well, why are you doing all this stuff for me? I'm not from around here. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not one of your people. I'm a foreigner. I come from the people of Moab. She wants to know why is she getting this favorable treatment? And Boaz says, I'm giving you this treatment because I heard about you. I heard about your character. I heard about your situation. I know you're here because you're taking care of your mother-in-law and I want to help you. I want to give you some kindness. And so Boaz is going out of his way to take care of her. And when Naomi finds out about this encounter, well, she wants to play the role of a matchmaker. You ever met people who want to be a matchmaker before? You ever met somebody maybe in the church who always want to hook somebody up? Well, that's what Naomi wants to do. She wants to hook them up. She knows who Boaz is. She knows that this is a good man here. This is a man of character. This is a man of integrity. She says this would be a good man for Ruth to marry. Naomi wants to, she wants to arrange for them to be together. And so in chapter three, 
we find her telling Ruth how to get a man. She tells her how to get a man. In verses 1 through 5, she tells her, if you want to get this man, this is what you got to do. You need to go fix yourself up. You need to get real pretty. Put on your best dress. Smell real good. Look real good. And when he goes to sleep on the threshing floor, be there at his feet. Naomi knows how to get a man, doesn't she? I think she's done this before. She know how to get her man. And you know what? Ruth said, I'm going to do that. She got real pretty, put on her best clothes, started smelling good, looking good, did her hair, had it all together. And when he fell asleep on the threshing floor, she went at his feet. And when he woke up, there she was. She was right there. And when he saw her, he was shocked. He, he, he was surprised to see this woman laying at his feet. In fact, he told her that he couldn't believe that she wanted him. He, he, he said to her, you actually want me? You want a guy like me? You could get a young man. Why, why you want a guy like me? Why you want an old man when you could get a young man? That's what he essentially says to her. He is ecstatic that she wants him. He even calls her a woman of excellence, and he told her that he wants to redeem her and make her his wife. But before he can do that, he's got to deal with a technical matter. There is a technical matter we got to deal with. You see, there was actually a person in Elimelech, that's Naomi's dead husband. There was a person in his family who was a closer kinsman than he was. And that person had a right to redeem Ruth before him. And so he can't just make her his wife right now, according to the law. He has to get this other guy out of the way first. And so in chapter four. That's what chapter four is all about. And chapter four, the beginning of the chapter, Boaz, he wants this woman so bad now, he's looking for this guy. He's trying to find this guy. And he finds him. He actually encounters him and has a conversation with him in front of 10 elders of the city. He comes to him and he lets him know that, hey, I got an interesting proposition for you. I like the way Boaz does this. He doesn't come out right away talking about Ruth. He talks about something else. He lets him know that he has a right to redeem a piece of land that belonged to Elimelech. But he says, if you don't want that land that you have a right to have, well, I'm the next in line to get it. So he says, do you, do you want this land that, that you have a right to, to have as the closest living relative to Elimelech? And the guy says, yeah, yeah, I want that land. I want to redeem that land. And Boaz says, okay, you can do that. You have the right to do that. But understand that if you redeem that land, you got to have something else with it. You got to have a woman with it. You got to have a Moabite woman with it. Ruth comes with the land. It's a package deal. When the guy heard that, he said, never mind. He said, no, thank you. He relinquished his right of redemption. And that freed up Boaz to rightfully marry Ruth according to what the law required. And so the book of Ruth ends with Boaz and Ruth getting married. They become husband and wife. God blesses them with a son. And several years after she lost both of her sons, 
Naomi gains a son. She's able to help raise their son, the son of Ruth and Boaz. Now, that's a beautiful story. That's a beautiful story. And it took place in a dark time. And we'll say more about it in our Bible classes over the next week or so. But here's the real question. The real question is, what can we learn from that? Why in the world is that in the Bible? What does the Holy Spirit of God want us to see from a story like that? Well, I believe there are several lessons that the Holy Spirit of God wants us to see in that story. And the first thing he wants us to see is this. He wants us to see faith. He wants us to see Ruth's faith. Go back in your Bible, please. We'll read some scriptures now. And I want to show you again Ruth chapter 1. Look at verse 15, please. We go back to Ruth chapter 1. I'm sorry, look at verse 16. Verse 16. This is after Naomi is suggesting that Orpah and Ruth stay in Moab and continue their lives there. It says in verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you from where you go. I will go and where you lodge. I will lodge your people shall be my people and your God, my God, where you die. I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord. May the Lord do to me in the worst if anything but death parts you and me. I want you to notice verse 17. The word Lord there. Do you see the word Lord? In your Bible, that word Lord may be in all caps, right? Is it in all caps? There's a reason why it's in all caps. The reason why it's in all, it's in all caps is because the translators are trying to tell us something. They're trying to tell us that when Ruth uses the word Lord there, she is using the very name of God. She is using the name that God is called by his people. She's using Jehovah. She's calling him Jehovah. See, that's a key verse there because it's, it's showing us something. It's showing us that on this occasion, Ruth is not just trading, trading gods. She's not saying to her mother-in-law, well, hey, you got your God, and you know, I'm a Moabite, and we got our gods over here, so I'm going to move with you. Well, I'll just trade my gods for your God. I'll just worship your God since I'm going to be living over there with the Israelites. That is not what that language suggests. Instead, that language suggests that by using the name of God, by calling God Jehovah, Ruth is determining to serve Jehovah. She is determined to to be a servant of God. She's determined to not just live in Israel, but to be of Israel, to be part of God's people. She is making a conscious decision here to follow God and have faith in God. That's what that verse is, is trying to show us. By calling God Jehovah, Lord, the Bible is showing us that by this time, Ruth has developed her own faith in God. The question is, do I have that? Do you have that? Right now, right now as you sit in that pew, do you have your own faith in God? Right now, are you serving and following the Lord, Jehovah, because you have made a choice and a commitment to do so. This morning, are you here? Not because you're trying to impress somebody. 
Not because you're trying to get somebody to stop nagging you about coming to church all the time. Not because your parents got you up, got you up this morning and they forced you to put on your clothes and get in the car and come here and go to church. Are you here? Not because you're being forced to be here, but because you want to be here. You want to serve God. You want to praise God. You want to give God the worship that he deserves. Ruth challenges me and you to ask ourselves, do we have our own faith? And she also challenged us to ask ourselves, am I sacrificing for my faith? Am I sacrificing for God? Think about all Ruth sacrificed for her faith in God. Think about it. She just left her home. She left her country. She gave up an opportunity to keep living a comfortable life in a comfortable environment and maybe be able to marry a Moabite man and have some Moabite children and continue practicing the religion of her people. She gave all of that normality up so she can go live in Bethlehem after a famine. So she can go live among the Israelites and engage in hard labor and live a poor life and make the one true God her God. Ruth sacrificed a lot for her faith in God. And the question is, what about me? What about me? Am I willing to sacrifice because of my faith in God? Am I willing to sacrifice my time? On Wednesday night, they come to Bible class because of my faith in God. Am I willing to sacrifice generous portions of my money on the first day of the week to give because of my faith in God? Am I willing to sacrifice an ungodly relationship, maybe an unlawful marriage or ungodly friends or even my pride to ask a brother or sister that I've done wrong to forgive me? What am I willing to sacrifice for my faith in God? Ruth sacrificed a lot to serve the Lord. And the Holy Spirit wants us to see that. He wants us to see her faith, but he doesn't just want us to see her faith. He also wants us to see God's provisions. God's provisions. Hear me carefully here, dear friends. Despite suffering immensely for a time, despite being very poor, and not having very much, despite living during a time of famine, I want you to notice how God always took care of Ruth and Naomi. He always took care of them. Did you notice that? He always makes sure that they have everything they need to survive. Through his word and through his providence, he made sure they had food and they had water. Now that, that didn't mean that Ruth didn't have to go to work. She had to go to work. She had to get a job. She had to get out and, and gather and glean every single day, but God was the one still taking care of them. God took care of both of these women during tough times. And you know what? God also takes care of us, doesn't he? He takes care of us. I mean, we may not have the kind of money that Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg has, but we still are blessed. I mean, think about it. Did you go to bed hungry last night? Are you going to go to bed hungry tonight? Are you not going to have a place to go and get some lunch after you leave this place, even though we're living in a time of high inflation and rising gas prices 
and food costs and high interest rates rates. Do we not still have everything we need? Are we not still blessed? Are we not still going to leave here in cars? And drive to air conditioned homes and have access to clean running water and all kinds of food and nice soft beds. And some of us even have access to all kinds of streaming services. God is good. And he's not just good some of the time. He's good all the time. And we see that when we study the book of Ruth. Ruth forces us to see some things about God's provisions. And this book also forces us to see some things about friendship. Friendship, the value of friendship, you know, beyond being mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, as we read this book, I want you to really appreciate how Naomi and Ruth are friends. They're friends. They have a real, genuine relationship. Ruth is loyal to Naomi. Ruth is devoted to Naomi. Ruth is so devoted to Naomi that she says, I'm never going to leave your side. I don't care what we go through. Even though Ruth didn't know anybody in Israel. Even though she was going to go in Israel and be a foreigner and an outcast and a reject, she still went with Naomi. She went with her across the Jordan River and she took care of her every single day. She got out and worked every single day so they both could have something to eat. She was a wonderful friend to her mother-in-law. And the people of the city acknowledged that in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 15. In Ruth chapter 4 and verse 15, after Ruth and, and Boaz have their child, the, the women of the city say this, may he also, talking about this child, be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law, talking about Ruth, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. That's a big statement, isn't it? These women say your daughter-in-law is better to you than seven sons. You know what that's showing us? Ruth was a wonderful friend. A wonderful friend. And do you have somebody like that in your life? Do you have a Ruth in your life right now? Do you have somebody that you can count on and who is devoted to you and will never let you down? Do you have somebody in your life right now that you can trust and will be there for you during the good times and the bad times? Do you have somebody like that right now? If you do, praise God. Thank God. Thank God for that person. Never take that person for granted. Understand that you've been blessed. Do your best to try to reciprocate that in the relationship. We learn some things about friendship in this book. And then we're also going to see some things about providence. It's a wonderful book about the providence of God working in people's lives. Let me tell you something. Hear me carefully. There are no coincidences in this book. There are no things that are just happening by chance. Ruth doesn't just happen to be gleaning in Boaz's field. And Boaz doesn't just happen to be out there one day and notice Ruth while she is gleaning in his field. And the man who's supposed to redeem Elimelech's land doesn't just happen to not be able to do that. And that frees up Boaz to marry Ruth. There is no just happenings in this book. This is all providence. The providence of God is at work in this book. God is working throughout this book. God is not working through miracles, but he's working naturally behind the scenes and behind the curtain 
to accomplish his will. That's all throughout the book of Ruth. God's providence is all through this book. And I want you to know something. God's providence is still active today. It's still active in my life and in your life. Now, we may not see God raising up dead people today. We're not going to see God raising dead people. And we're not going to see God giving sight to the blind and casting demons out of people and parting the Red Sea. God's not doing that kind of stuff today. But just because he's not doing that kind of stuff, that doesn't mean he's not doing anything. That doesn't mean he's sitting up in heaven taking a nap. And he doesn't know what's going on in our lives. No, God knows what's going on in our lives, and he's still working. He's working. He continues to work providentially in the lives of his people, just like he worked providentially in the life of Ruth. And so we're going to see that when we study this book. And then there's one more thing I want to show you really quickly, and we're going to be done. Another thing we're going to see, the Holy Spirit wants us to see in this book, it's Jesus. Got to see Jesus in the book of Ruth. Someone says, what in the world is Jesus in the book of Ruth? We'll go back to Ruth one more time. Look at chapter four. The last few verses, please. I'll go up to verse 16 and read to verse 22. In Ruth chapter four, verse 16, the Bible says that after Boaz and Ruth have this child, then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son's been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of, of Perez. To Perez was, was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Abinadab, and to Abinadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. Now notice how the book of Ruth ends with genealogy. It ends with genealogy. It ends by showing us that giving, after giving birth to Obed over the course of time, Ruth would become the great-grandmother of David. She would become the great-grandmother of King David, the man after God's own heart. Someone says, why is that such a big deal? Well, that's a big deal because of how the gospel opens. And Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, Matthew begins the gospel with genealogy. And he tells us that Jesus doesn't just come through the family of Abraham, but he also comes through the family of David. He says that Jesus came into the world through David, which means Jesus also came into the world through Ruth. Ruth, a Moabite, is in the genealogy of Jesus. You know what that shows us? That shows us that God can use anybody to accomplish his will. God could use a Moabite woman to help bring his son into this world. And you know what? God can also use us. God can use me. God can use you. It doesn't matter what your background might be. It doesn't matter what your physical race might be. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, male or female. It doesn't even matter what sins or mistakes you've made in the past. If you, like Ruth, determine to make God your God and love God and serve God and have faith in God, he can use you. He can use all of us to do amazing things for his glory. He can use us 
to win souls. He can use us to be leaders in the church, to be elders and deacons. He can use us to be Bible class teachers and song leaders and encouragers and be people who can begin and leave lasting legacies of faithfulness in our families. God can use us for his glory like he used Ruth for his glory. The question is, do you need to come? Do you need to come to Jesus? Do you need to come to the Messiah? Do you need to come to the one that the writer of Ruth is really trying to get us to think about as he concludes that beautiful story in a dark time? If there's someone here this morning who needs to come to the Messiah, the one that the whole Old Testament is about, if you need to come to him, the one who came into the world through Ruth and through David, you have an opportunity to do so this morning, whether that means for the first time through faith and repentance and immersion in water for forgiveness of sins. Or if you need to come back to the Lord because you haven't been living the kind of life he has called you to live. Anyone who needs to come to the Messiah this morning. Make your way to the front as we stand and we sing. Well, you come.